Chapter 5 of A Lady's Captivity Among Chinese Pirates in the Chinese Seas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Captivity Among Chinese Pirates in the Chinese Seas by Fanny Lovio. Translated by Amelia Anne Lanford Edwards. Chapter 5 Captain Rooney. Tan Sing, a storm, the typhoon, fall of the mizzenmast, effects of the tempest, disasters of the caldera, Chinese pirates, seen between decks, a crew in fetters, examination, I am threatened with death, plunder. Towards four o'clock in the afternoon on the 4th of October, 1854, I went on board the brig caldera which under a chilean flag was about to set sail that evening for california such was the honesty and frankness of the captain's face that i was immediately prepossessed in his favor mr rooney was a man of about thirty-five years of age neither short nor tall and to all appearance a thorough sailor his countenance betokened an energetic character and i would have staked my existence upon his courage and good nature my first care was to visit my cabin and arrange my luggage. Soon after this, we weighed anchor and put out to sea. Once on the way, I was seized with a listless melancholy, for which I found it impossible to account. This melancholy, which might have been a presentiment, seemed all the stranger considering that I was returning to America, to my sister and my friends. Resolved, somehow or another, to shake it off, I left my cabin and made the tour of the ship. It was a handsome three-masted brig of eight hundred tons burthen, well-rigged and gracefully built. I visited the saloon, the cabins, the captain's parlor, and another which belonged to the supercargo of a commercial house at San Francisco, the heads of which had a valuable cargo on board. The saloon was lighted from above and elegantly fitted up with panelings of white and gold. So clean and orderly was every corner of the vessel that it seemed as if nothing adverse could take place to interrupt our course, and I almost fancied that we might all be allowed to sleep away the three long months which must elapse before our arrival in California. Of one of my fellow travelers I shall often have occasion to speak. He was a Chinese of about fifty years of age and an inhabitant of Canton. He had a commercial house at San Francisco and was carrying with him a large stock of opium, sugar, and coffee. His name was Tan Sing. His features were of the type common to his nation, and deeply scarred by the smallpox. Though plain, however, he was not unprepossessing, for good nature was expressed in every line of his countenance, and his smile was kindness itself. We sat down for to dinner, and found that no two of us belonged to the same nation. The captain was English the supercargo American, Tan Sing Chinese, and I French. I am thus particular in defining our several nationalities, in order to prove how much our difficulties must have been increased in any case of peril by the differences of language. Tan Sing spoke English as I did, that is to say, indifferently, but not one of the party spoke French. It will hereafter be seen how Tan Sing, who alone spoke Chinese, had it in his power to save and serve us all. 
our crew consisted of seventeen men of various nations awakened next morning by the hurrying to and fro of the sailors i became uneasy dressed in haste and went on deck a sailor had fallen overboard and the ship was lying to his head was just visible above the waves and we had already left him far behind he followed us swimming gallantly and in the course of about twenty minutes came alongside and was hoisted upon deck his comrades greeted him with acclamations but he replied roughly enough as if he were ashamed of his misfortune trifling as this incident was it left an unpleasant impression on my mind for it seemed as if our voyage had begun badly. The song of the sailors augmented my melancholy. It was a fantastic and monotonous melody, very unlike the cheerful airs sung by our French mariners. Going back sorrowfully to my cabin, I amused myself by feeding two charming little birds that I had brought with me from Hong Kong. I kissed them tenderly, for they were all that I had to love. The breeze was mild. We had land in sight all day, and made but little way. Towards evening, the barometer fell with alarming rapidity. A strong wind sprang up, and the sea grew boisterous. Anticipating the coming storm, the captain made rapid preparations and furled all sail. It was well he did so, for we were soon to be at the mercy of the typhoon. The typhoon is a dangerous wind, much feared in the Indian and Chinese seas. On the sea, as on the land, it carries with it death and destruction. It is neither a north wind nor a south wind, and blows as much from the east as from the west. It is, indeed, a combat between all four, and the great ocean is the scene of their warfare. Woe, then, to the ship which has to contend against this fearful strife. Tossed and tormented, driven on from behind, and driven back from before, neither sailors nor steersmen avail to guide her. For long hours the caldera remained the plaything of this fearful wind. We were every moment threatened with destruction. Before the tempest had lasted two hours, the mizzenmast and mainmast were both broken halfway, and the top gallant masts laid along the decks, with all their cordage rent. Two of our boats had been carried away by the waves. Below, everything was broken, and we had two feet of water in the cabins. Added to all this, the waves broke against us with a noise like thunder, and our timbers creaked, as if the ship would go to pieces. Every now and then the captain came down to console me. His hair and clothes were wet through, but in the midst of all this danger he never lost his cheerfulness for an instant. "'You're afraid,' said he, in his rough but kindly tones. I denied it, but my pale face betrayed my fears, for he shook his head compassionately as he left me. I must confess that I endured an agony of terror. Everything was rolling about, and my poor little birds hanging from the ceiling in their wicker cage shrank down together, trembling and stupefied. For my part, I had taken refuge in my berth, for the motion was such that I could no longer keep my footing. All at once, a frightful crash resounded overhead, and I was flung out upon the floor. I covered my face with my hands. I believed that the ship was going to pieces and that our last moments had arrived. This crash proved to be the fall of the mizzen and top-gallant masts. I marvel now that the caldera should have lived through the storm. She did live, however, and after fourteen hours of distress, the tempest gradually abated. Towards midday, the wind died quite away, and if the sea continued to be somewhat agitated, 
that agitation after what we had lately gone through seemed like a delightful calm about four o'clock in the afternoon i left my cabin and went into the saloon it was flooded with water and strewn with a chaotic mess of broken furniture and crockery i then proceeded upon deck there indeed the tempest had done its work it was with difficulty that i could make my way from one end to the other cables chains and broken masts lay about in all directions the sea was muddy and the sky was low and a thick haze hung over the distance the sailors looked weary and one of them had been severely wounded by a falling mast added to our other misfortunes fifty-two fowls and six pigs had been killed during the night we were still within sight of land and the captain whose object was to get back to hong kong as soon as possible had with difficulty hoisted a sail to the foremast to return was imperative since it would take at least six weeks to repair the damage that we had sustained a dead calm now reigned around us and we remembered for the first time that we were all very hungry our dinner was the dreariest meal imaginable we were all profoundly silent the captain's face betrayed his anxiety and i afterwards learnt that he was thinking at that very time of a misfortune which happened to him only two years before falling into the hands of indian pirates captain rooney had seen all his sailors killed before his face and being himself bound to the mast of his ship was cruelly tortured for three months they kept him prisoner at the end of which time he effected his escape so dismal a countenance as that of the supercargo i never beheld he had been in mortal fear of death all through the night and acknowledged that he had trembled almost as much for his cargo as for his life as for tan sing his was the face of a man who openly rejoiced in his safety and his calm smile contrasted strangely with the general uneasiness for my part i could not so readily forget the sufferings of the last eighteen hours what more can i know of the horrors of the sea i asked myself if it be not to make it my grave the captain ordered us early to rest i was so weary that i could have slept upon the floor as contentedly as upon a feather bed and my berth appeared to me the most delightful place in the world i hoped to sleep for at least ten or twelve good hours and had no sooner laid down than i fell into a profound slumber it might have been midnight or perhaps a little later when i awoke believing myself to be the victim of a horrible nightmare i seemed to hear a chorus of frightful cries and sitting up bewildered in my bed found my cabin filled with a strange red light believing that the ship was on fire i sprang out of bed and rushed to the door the captain and the supercargo were standing each on the threshold of his cabin we looked speechlessly at one another for the savage yells grew every instant louder and a shower of missiles was falling all around pieces of stone and iron came crashing down through the skylights and rolled heavily about the decks and strange flashes of fire were reflected from without i clung to the captain i could not speak i had no voice and the words died away upon my lips captain i faltered captain fire the ship is on fire do you hear what noise is that but he stood like one petrified i do not know said he and rushing into his cabin came back with a revolver in his hand that revolver was the only weapon of defence on board at this moment the mate came running down i could not hear what he said but dreading some terrible misfortune i went back into my cabin and climbed up to the window 
that overlooked the sea. By the lurid light without, I beheld a crowd of Chinese junks. Beside myself with terror, I flew back to the captain, crying, Oh, they are pirates! They are pirates! And they were indeed pirates, those terrible pirates which scour the Chinese seas, and are so famous for their cruelties. We were utterly in their power. Three junks, each manned by thirty or forty ruffians, surrounded the caldera. These creatures seemed like demons, born of the tempest, and bent upon completing our destruction. Having boarded the caldera by means of grappling hooks, they were now dancing an infernal dance upon deck, and uttering cries which sounded like nothing human. The smashing of the glass awoke our whole crew, and the light which we had taken for a fire at sea was occasioned by the bursting of fiery balls which they cast on deck to frighten us. Calculating upon this method of alarming their victims, they attack vessels chiefly in the night, and seldom meet with any resistance. The captain, the supercargo, and the mate made an effort to go upon deck. I followed them instinctively. Driven back by flaming balls, we were forced to beat a retreat, and narrowly escaped being burnt. It seemed strange that they should risk setting fire to the ship, when plunder was their evident intention. The captain, having but his revolver for our defense, recommended that we should keep out of sight as long as possible. Useless precaution. Accustomed as they were to predatory warfare, they were sure to find us as easily in one place as another. Fear, however, left us no time for reflection. We fled precipitately between decks, and hid ourselves as best we might. Five of the sailors were there before us, and none of us knew what had become of the rest of the crew. Perhaps they were already taken prisoners. As to Tan Sing, he had not been seen since the evening before. These savage cries, and this still more savage dance, went on overhead without cessation. Through a crack in the partition which concealed us, we witnessed all their proceedings. Seen by the red firelight, they looked unspeakably hideous. They were dressed like all other Chinese, except that they wore scarlet turbans on their heads, and round their waists broad leathern belts garnished with knives and pistols. In addition to this, each man carried in his hand a naked sword. At this sight, my heart sank within me, and I believed my last hour was at hand. Creeping on my hands and knees, I crouched down behind the captain, and we hid ourselves amid the merchandise, about twenty feet from the entrance. Further than this we could not go on account of the goods which were there piled to the level of the upper deck. Scarcely able to breathe, we heard them come down into the cabins and upset everything on which they could lay their hands. Soon a well-known voice reached our ears. It was the voice of Tan Sing, whom they had just discovered. A loud dispute then took place between him and the pirates. They doubtless demanded where the rest of the crew had hidden themselves, for he called to us in English several times, saying, Captain, Captain, where are you? Are you below? Answer. Come here. Come quickly. But nobody stirred. The captain grasped his pistol and vowed to shoot the first pirate who came near us. But I entreated him to do no such thing, since the death of one man could in no wise serve us and might, on the contrary, incline our enemies to a wholesale massacre. He seemed to see the justice of my fears and hid his weapon in his bosom. It was not long before we were discovered. I shudder still when I recall the sound of those approaching footsteps. They raised the trap on deck and let down a lighted lantern. We crowded together in a vain effort at concealment, but the light came lower and lower, 
and we were seen at last. In another instant, five or six pirates, armed to the teeth, leaped into the hold and advanced towards us. The captain then rose up and went to meet them. Smiling, he offered them his revolver. They drew back as if to defend themselves. Then, seeing that he held the butt end turned towards them, and that we made no effort at resistance, came eagerly forward and glared at us with savage delight. Two of them then went up on deck and made signs that we should follow them. More dead than alive, I remained crouched behind some bales. I saw my companions going, one by one. I would have followed them, but had no strength to stir. When the last had disappeared, and I found myself left alone with these monsters, I rose up by a despairing effort and fell at their feet. Seeing that I was a woman, they burst into exclamations of surprise and joy. Dreading every instant, lest they should seize me, I rushed to the door, and in another moment found myself on deck. Surrounded by a crowd of pirates armed with sabers and pistols, I saw every eye fixed eagerly upon the few jewels that I wore. To pull off my rings and earrings and throw them at their feet was the work of a moment, for I dreaded lest I should become the victim of their impatience. Those who were nearest clutched them greedily. An angry scuffle ensued, and but for the interference of their captain, a sanguinary quarrel would probably have followed. They then pushed me towards the stairs leading to the upper deck, and there I found my companions loaded with chains. The sea was still agitated, and huge black clouds, last remnants of the tempest, scudded hither and thither across the sky. The poor caldera, riding helplessly at anchor, swayed to and fro like a mere log upon the waters. A thick fog froze us with cold, and a dead silence, which was only interrupted by the groans of the sailor who had been hurt the night before, reigned all around us. Torn by a thousand fears and regrets, I longed to weep, but could not shed a tear. Meanwhile, the pirates, who numbered perhaps a hundred men, were searching for plunder. Two or three of them came up, and made signs to me to observe the chains with which my companions were fettered. Thinking that they wished to treat me in the same manner, I submissively held out my hands, but they shook their heads. One of them then passed the cold blade of his sabre along my throat, whilst the others made signs expressive of their inclination to behead me. I stirred neither hand nor foot, though my face, I dare say, indicated the depth of my despair. Once more I extended my hands to be tied. They seized hold of them angrily and passed their fingers round and round my wrists, though for what purpose I could not imagine. What could they want? Was it their intention to cut off my hands? In this moment I recognized all the horrors of my position. I closed my eyes and leaned my head against the bulwark. The sight of these monsters was alone sufficient to make death welcome, and I awaited it with entire resignation. I was still in the state of semi-stupefaction when Tan Sing came up and touched me on the shoulder. Be not afraid, said he, they do not mean to harm you. Their only object is to frighten you, lest you should attempt to set your companions at liberty. He was now sent for by the pirate chief, who was a small, wiry-looking man, with a countenance more intelligent and less ferocious than the others. Tan Sing, although not fettered, was a prisoner like ourselves, and being the only Chinese on board, acted as our interpreter. Captain Rooney was next sent for. Calm and disdainful, he seemed to despise the success of his captors and his own personal danger. "'Is he English?' asked the chief. Tan Sing, luckily remembering the feud 
then existing between China and Great Britain, replied that the captain was a Spaniard, and the crew composed of various Europeans. This proved, indeed, to be a fortunate inspiration, for the pirate instantly replied that, had we been English, our throats should all have been cut upon the spot. He then inquired respecting the number of persons on board, and the amount of money which we carried, and ended by asking if I were the wife of Mr. Rooney. Having satisfied him on the two former points, Tan Sing replied that I was a Frenchwoman, journeying to California, a stranger in China, and quite without friends or relatives in this part of the world. The excellent Chinese was careful to impress this fact of my loneliness upon them, hoping thereby to moderate any expectations which they might have formed respecting the amount of my ransom. Captain Rooney's hands were then released, and he had to submit to the humiliation of accompanying the chief through every part of the ship. He was even obliged to furnish an exact inventory of his cargo. For our lives, we were already indebted to the generous misrepresentations of Tan Sing, but it was yet possible that the pirates might change their minds, and although they had promised to save our lives, we scarcely dared to depend upon it. Besides all this, more pirates might arrive to dispute the prize, and we be sacrificed in the strife. Such were my reflections during the absence of the captain. A scene of plunder was at this moment being enacted before my eyes. The cabins were first dismantled, and I beheld my own luggage transported on board the junks. Everything was taken, even my dear little birds in their wicker cage. They survived the tempest, said I, only to die of cold and neglect. And with this, the tears, which had so long refused to flow, coursed hotly down my cheeks. I was aroused from this melancholy train of thought by the return of the captain. Our sailors were now unchained to work the ship, and the pirate chief gave orders that we should weigh anchor and put into a neighboring bay. At the same time, our men were all given to understand that, at the least token of revolt, we should all be slaughtered without pity. As for Tan Sing, the supercargo, and myself, we were left on the upper deck in company with the wounded sailor, since none of us could be of any use in the management of the vessel. At this moment, one of the robbers came up with a parcel of jewels and money, which he had just found. In one hand, he held a silver fork, the properties and uses of which seemed mightily to perplex him. He paused, looked at me, and raised the fork to his head, as if to ask me whether it were a woman's comb. Under any other circumstances, his ignorance might have amused me. Now, however, I had no strength to reply to him, even by a sign. Tan Sing then came to my assistance, and the pirate, having received the information he desired, went away. I hoped that we had got rid of him, but returning almost immediately, he held a handful of silver before my eyes, pointed towards a junk which we had in tow, and endeavored, by his looks and gestures, to arouse me from my apathy. It was not difficult to interpret these signs, and I saw with a shudder that he wanted me to fly with him. Tan Sing, who had been silently observing the scene, now took pity on my distress, and addressed the man in Chinese. He doubtless threatened to betray his treachery to the chief, for the pirate hung his head and went silently away. The weather was now misty and much colder, and, half-clothed as we were, we suffered intensely. It is but fair, however, to say that our captors were not wholly insensible to our miseries, and that they had at least the charity to cover us with a few rugs and pieces of sailcloth. Shortly after this, we heard a sound of falling chains, and the anchor was cast once more. Alas, 
Was that anchor ever to be weighed again, or was it destined to rust away throughout all the ages of time in the spot where it was now embedded? Heaven only knew. End of chapter 5 Recording by Karen